Welcome, everybody, to another edition of ATL Alts. This is your host, Andre Sindate. I am joined today for part two of our two-part interview with Jeff Parks and Jimmy Viopoulos from Stack Capital in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome back to ATL Alts, Jeff and Jimmy. Thanks for having us back. Thanks for having us back, Andres. We are here for part two of our two-part interview. Uh, who knows if this goes well, maybe we'll do part three. But you know, in part one, we got into the background of Stack Capital, the concept uh, behind the business, taking it public, um, the IPO process. So for the listeners out there who have not listened to part one, I'd encourage you to go to atlalts.com where you can listen to part one of this interview. Part two, what I wanted to do, Jeff and Jimmy, was ask you some more questions about how you uh, built your board of directors, ask you about how you selected members for your advisory board, and then spend some time talking about you know, the experience as a public company, as a publicly traded investment holding company, um, and some of the new cadence and some of the new uh, processes. And then you know, obviously get, you know, maybe into later in the, in the interview talking about your sort of outlook, you know, maybe not specific names and specific holdings, um, but, but more just what your outlook is, the kinds of things that you are seeing out there uh, as you execute the strategy, if that sounds uh, like a plan. That'd be great. All right, great. So Jimmy, I'm going to come to you first. Um, Life as a public company, I mean, you have a board of directors, uh, you have an advisory board. Talk to us about how you, uh, built your board? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, first thing when looking to form a board, you know, you have to think, you know, what they're there for is to represent shareholders and hold us as management accountable. And so what you want is people who have experience as uh, founders, as uh, operators, and as uh, board of directors, and really understand the governance and how everything all works. And so we believe we put together a, a world-class board for this respect. You know, For example, uh, Jerry Sinclair on our board, she was actually a board of director for the TSX itself. So, so she understands the, the regime under which we run. Uh, she founded a company which was uh, acquired by Microsoft, which uh, she then began uh, running, and she's worked in uh, venture capital. So, so very, very impressive background in person. Uh, our, our chairman, John Bell, has extensive experience as both a founder and uh, a, a board of director. Crazy enough, he was the chairman of Canopy uh, Growth, which became one of the largest um, businesses in the uh, cannabis sector. So, so he's seen these new sectors and and uh, incredible experience. And and our third board member, uh, Lori Goldberg, has been in asset management for a very long time. Most recently, working at uh, People Corp, which he recently sold for over a billion dollars to Goldman Sachs. So, so again, very, and, and also Jeff Parks is on our board uh, as well. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, his background, all people who really understand what it takes to be a public company and the standards we have to hold ourselves to. Uh, and so we obviously stay very close to our board. Most of these people we've worked with in some way or another um, in the past. And, and so, so, so this is obviously a key part of being a public company is having a real board that really knows what they're doing and, and, and holding us, holding our feet to the fire. Uh, and then advisory board, 
very different thing, right? We want they're there to really advise both board and management to just op, to do the as good of a job as we can and and have the best advice that uh, that is out there. Um, so so we have uh, three advisory board members. Uh, one of them, very notable, is Bill Tai. I've worked with him in the past uh, when I was in, in in crypto. This individual was the first uh, investor in Zoom. Uh, one of the first investors in Wish.com and in Twitter TweetDeck, uh, Dapper Labs. He's involved, you know, very broadly in venture capital and in uh, the crypto uh, arena. So, uh, just incredible uh, individual to have uh, behind us. And so, we really tried to put together a full team that you know allows us to not only be a public company but pick the best investments and. Uh, operate with the the best insights that we possibly can. Yeah, Jeff, I want to come uh, to you. I know you're a member of the board of directors, and Jimmy did a great job of outlining sort of how the board was was composed. Um, but I want to uh, let you jump in here with a comment. Yeah, I'll also add on the advisory board. You have the CFO of the largest division of Constellation Software, Brian Beatty. They do a lot of M&A in the software, uh, in the software space. Very, very large public company up here in Canada. It was very, very successful. It's a pleasure having him on the advisory board as well. And same thing with the Waste Qureshi. He comes from Canada Post Pension Plan, where he manages several billion dollars of pension plan assets. And that was the really, that was a big key. We wanted individuals from the asset management space and institutional space mixed with the tech space. You marry these two together and that's when a lot of idea generation can happen so that can propel a stack capital forward. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if, if you could talk a little bit about the, you talked about the composition of the board and the advisory board, but also the investor base of a publicly traded company increasingly with what we read about in terms of activists, shareholders, and you know governance and proxy. When you hear uh, what's happening with some of these meme stocks with, you know, the, 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 the internet chat rooms and the reddits of the world, like there's a lot more individuals um, that are being vocal or hedge funds. You've been in the hedge fund business. So, you know, the activist hedge funds out there, the third points, the, you know, of the world. But when you think about running a public company versus a private enterprise, like it's a whole different, you know, ball of wax. Um, and, and having a sticky, supportive investor base that really understands the business and understands the industry and the drivers is so critical. So talk a little bit about when you were sort of, you know, going through the motion and setting up Stack Capital and taking it public, like what kind of investor base were you trying to uh, end up with? And do you have that today? I know there's some things you could probably share and some things maybe you can't, but what is it? What is a high level? What did it result in the IPO? Yeah, so I'll say when we originally started, we wanted to sell the hardest individual first. And who is that sale? That's the big pension individuals. And if the pensions are willing to write you a ticket, that speaks to your strategy and speaks to what you're doing. So if you looked after the IPO, what actually came through was around 40 to 45% was institutional with the balance being retail. And why did it come out to be that? Because this product works for everybody. On the pension side, what do they see? You have a portfolio manager on the public side of the pension. Well, sometimes they have a hard time getting into these private businesses and getting allocations on IPOs. Well, now you can kind of use Stack Capital Group as your backdoor way 
of getting into that pre-IPO, getting an allocation, which helps your underlying performance. Same goes for the hedge fund business in the mutual fund business, where a lot of them aren't allowed to play privates, but they can play publics. So because Stack Capital Group has a number of privates underneath its wrapper, they're allowed to put that into their book. And then plus on the retail side, well, they love the underlying product because they've never seen exposure to some of these private companies. So it was great that it could fit all three of those categories of individual investors who could put capital into Stack Capital Group. And when we uh, talked in part one about some of the competitive advantages of Stack Capital relative to a traditional way to invest in pre-IPO, growth stage, late growth stage companies, one of the things uh, was liquidity. One of the things was uh, lower minimums. You know, one of the things was giving uh, more of a uh, a retail investor, I guess you could say, somebody that's writing a smaller ticket or a smaller check, an opportunity to invest in some of these, you know, disruptive technolo- technology companies. And, and so when you really take that one step further, what are investors who are looking at the growth stage companies, the late growth stage companies, the pre-IPO, what are the things that they should be looking at, right? Um, because when, when, when they're thinking about investing in stack capital, which is, those are the sectors where you're focused in technology in North America, but what are the things that are different about these companies than some of the things that you're seeing in, let's just say a, a company that has elected to go public and sell shares? Because you're getting in them, you're you're investing in them before, you know they, they they get to that that stage. And we talked about how they're staying private longer. Yeah, so a lot of them, a lot of the companies, they'll sit there in the private markets raising more capital. Because what do you really need the public market for? You need the public market to get liquidity for your underlying shareholders. You need the public market to be able to raise additional capital. And these private companies have access to both of those. Now, at one point, all of them are going to go down that path, whether they're acquired in the private market or they sit there and they IPO, they will go down one of those avenues. Um, but a lot of the management teams, they, they, they really want to stay private for longer because they can build that business in the private market. And there's no quarterly earnings. Did we miss? Did we, did we beat? So, and I, I, I don't blame a lot of those management teams for wanting to do that. In terms, of, in terms of the attributes, what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of the revenue profiles. They're a lot larger when they go public versus what you see in the private market. So what our, our, uh, our cup of tea is kind of anything that has $100 million plus, that's a, that's a, that's a great starting point for us when we're, when we're researching these businesses, because then you know the business has proven product market fit. And then a year, two years later, might have 250 million plus of revenues. And that's when you see a Goldman or a Morgan or one of the big banking syndicates come in, want to IPO that company and bring it public. And when you're building a, a portfolio, if you will, of, of holdings, you know, again, not to get into individual security selection and individual names, but just yeah. when you think about building an investment holding company, you know, you're obviously thinking about diversifying and if you raise a hundred, $150 million, you're, you're deploying that across a series of different investments. You know, you're making a series of different allocations. Um, if you are looking at where we are in the, 
you know, the, the economic cycle, right? Some would say we're very early in a big multi, you know, decade technological boom. Some would say, oh my gosh, we're really late. When you think about it, you know, and your investment team is evaluating a pitch book and a pitch deck and there's, you know, a deal, you've got to make a decision. How does the macro environment versus the individual, you know, company and what they're doing um, in their specific sector, how do those kind of interface? What what, what are some of the things that your investment team is looking for? Yeah, like we always like, what's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room is what happens if interest rates go down or sorry, go up. Yeah. If interest rates go up, multiples go down, in which case you get multiple compression in the high growth stocks. So taking on that duration risk, it can be scary at times. And that's why you have to do a lot of due diligence on the underlying company. And what you really are looking for is sustainability in that growth. Because if that company continues to grow on that path, whether it's 30% compounded per year, 40 or 50 or 100, whatever the number may be, you can grow into that multiple that you're buying. But you just need to see the sustainability of that. So that elephant in the room is definitely rates. What happens with rates? It looks like they're going up. Um, and we are definitely taking that duration risk. But if we pick these companies properly and we pick the ones that we think are going to be the winners with that sustainable growth, we'll continue to grow in those multiples. And these companies will be a lot bigger than what they, what, than what they are, or sorry, what we are buying them today at. Yeah. Jimmy, I want to ask you um, to the folks out there listening, you know, that, that, that maybe don't have any allocation never invested in private equity or private growth uh, businesses, whether through a fund or, or uh, an investment holding company like Stack Capital, what is the inbound sourcing access to deal flow machine kind of look like at a typical firm? Uh, and and if, if you want to comment on that or you want to talk about what you, what you see every day at your firm, you know, because I, 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 there's all these really interesting disruptive technology companies out there, you know, that are that are very difficult to invest in. And unless you're a, a, a really tier one venture capital fund or maybe one of these really big hedge funds or a really big mutual fund, like you just the phone doesn't ring and you're not getting an access. You're not getting access to invest in those those companies. So maybe characterize, you know, what what you have experienced at Stack Capital and how do you build that machine so that you're getting a good look at really great, promising, disruptive technology businesses on behalf of your investors? Definitely. Yeah. So so the way it typically works really varies in, in what sector and uh, what stage you're investing in. So, so it's tough to say in, in broad strokes, but you know, if you're looking at a venture capital fund, uh, who's looking at very, very early, you know, seed, pre-seed stage stuff. Uh, they're, they're, you know, in the ecosystem and, and trying to talk to as many companies as they possibly can. They have a team sourcing and, uh, and so, so that's, that's, you know, in the, in the very, very early stage stuff. Uh, for us, you know, we're only investing when we're seeing product market fit, you know, it's in and past that growth stage, of a company. And so what we're really doing, the, the big piece for us is leveraging our network. And, and you know, f- from all of us in our prior worlds, we know lots of folks in, 
in the venture capital world, private equity, you know, act, you know, people in the arena actually starting these companies, as well as a lot of people in and around that ecosystem. And so for us, we're, we're constantly on the phone trying to learn more and um, see, see, the, see the next best deal. Uh, and obviously that extends through our board and with our advisory board who are also helping us in, in every way. But the biggest thing I'll note is this year, you know, I read a stat, more unicorns, unicorns created in the past three years combined. So you have uh, just so, and, and that's, you know, those are companies entering into what we are, uh, what, what our focus is. And so there are so many companies that are in that range uh, and in, in that investable range for us. Uh, so it's, so it's, it can be quite overwhelming to look at all of these companies and uh, keep up with everything. Yeah, I was going to say right now, it seems like anybody that has the ability to go raise money and to Jeff's points, you know, they don't have to rush to hit the public equity market. And there's not some window necessarily that it seems like they have to try to jam themselves through. Otherwise, it's gone because it seems like there's so much capital on the sidelines that wants to be into growth and, and pre-IPO companies that they can continue to delay. Now, at some stage, like you said, Jeff, they want to go public or may go public or there may be an acquisition uh, opportunity. And, and I guess at this point, you know, that kind of leads me to a question. When you think about the evolution of Stack Capital Group, like you're deploying capital that you raised through the pre-IPO or, or pardon, through the IPO process. What does the company look like over time? Is the idea you're going to get an opportunity to recycle the money into other deals? And obviously, if investors you know, want, quote unquote, liquidity, it's just like a, any, any shares that they may own in other parts of their portfolio. But talk us through the evolution of stack capital as you see companies have liquidity events, whether through M&A or through the IPO process, et cetera. Well, the biggest thing for us and what gets us ticking is organic growth. So there's two ways to basically increase stack capital group as a, as a market cap and a bigger player. We can raise more capital or we can basically drive through organic growth, i.e. underlying positions working very well for us. And that's what makes us tick. That's what makes any portfolio manager tick. You sit there, you want to get a really big return for your underlying, uh, underlying shareholders. So we will definitely focus in on that. And when a company, we buy it and it ends up IPOing, we will look to cycle that out over time and redeploy that right back into the private markets. Because what's our, what's our value add to the underlying individual shareholders that we can get you access to privates. Everybody can go on their phone, whether they go to the Robinhood app or Charles Schwab or TD Ameritrade and buy public securities. We want to give you that access to the privates. So over time, we will look to rotate those out in the public market and redeploy that capital back into the private market. And can you talk about whether it's a, a this is a, a governance question or it's a risk management question or it's maybe it's a, a an investor relations question? Do the you know do the interests of a defined benefit and their you know call it their actuarial assumption that they've got to hit for their you know retirees whether it's six percent seven percent and the interests of individual advisors 
you know, a wealth advisor, a wealth manager and their high net worth client or, or individual client, like do those align and, and does it matter, right? When you're managing an investment holding company, that's got 60% institutional, 40% non-institutional, um, and you're not the only holding company. You're not the only, you know, publicly traded asset manager that has a diverse investor base. I just would love you to educate us um, about, you know, what what are the things that your investors need to understand when investing in a, an investment holding company when they come from a pension versus being an individual or a wealth advisor. I think uh, I think the return profile definitely varies for individual to retail. Sometimes individuals want higher return profiles in the pension. So to your point, the defined benefit pension is trying to sit there and they're trying to get an average six or seven or eight percent return, whatever the number is in there. But I think they also come to us realizing that we can offer a higher return profile. And if they did that in a lesser weight within their pension, then that's just going to help them achieve that six or seven or eight percent. Um, and then, yeah, to your point, I, I, I definitely think there is a difference with the retail uh, investor and what they're looking for in terms of return profile. Um, but ultimately, does that, does that really matter to underlying stack capital group? I don't think so. Hmm. And then when you think about how stack capital evolves and grows today you have just completed an ipo so you have a fresh call it um you know amount of capital to, to go to go deploy are there are there more ideas to your point jimmy to look at than there is capital to put against because i often hear that right from asset managers like man if we had more capital there's so many great ideas um so when you think about the evolution of, you know, whether it's raising more capital or having more investors, you know, while these companies are out raising money, do you find yourself having to, to say, hey, we've already got enough exposure in X, Y, Z, you know, we'd love to be bigger, but we can't due to, due to the size of the firm. I mean, and, and we have to pass or, uh, or are you capitalized to the point where you can execute on the deals that you want to execute on? I, I think I think you hit it right there. There's there's so many amazing companies that we're seeing out there uh, that uh, it it makes the job hard sometimes because we only have so many bullets to fire with our current capital. And what's amazing about this industry and what we have here is it's very scalable. Uh, like we, you know, again we see so many companies that are uh, so exciting, great growth trajectory. You know, checking off all the boxes, but just like you said, it's either you know we already hit that industry, and uh, or you know we we see something else that has a higher growth trajectory, and and again with the number of bullets that we have, we have to make sure we're we're shooting each one right. So we're very selective and very analytical about each of our decisions. But you know, with more with with more capital, there'd definitely be. Uh, there wouldn't be a shortage of ideas for those to go into. That's for sure. Yeah. And as you think about building the organization out, what are the other parts of this organization at Stack Capital that you see will continue to expand? Is it is it having people, you know, on the ground in other parts of the country, in Canada or in the U.S.? I know that you have more of a North America focus. Is it having uh, more folks? I mean, one of the things that 
that I guess I'm hitting at is as you scale an organization, you know, do you have to scale with people or do you scale more with capital and you can run kind of people light uh, in, in this model? And either of you can answer that. Yeah, I, 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 yeah go for it, Jeff. I, I would definitely say this is this is one of the businesses that you can be very capital light on so that, that capital can scale. And those ideas, us sitting in here cycling through those ideas, whether we're a hundred million right now or a billion dollars uh, a few years from now, we could still operate this structure very, very light. I would add though that it's really nice to have some sector specialist, whether it's a person who really knows a crypto or it's a person who really knows a certain med tech area, having those sector specialists is very, is, 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 is helpful, especially us being generalists. You might want to, you might want to, I'll say this, go down into the U S healthcare system. And I've looked at a number of different companies and you still like, you still learn new things um, even to this day. And I've looked at those companies for 10 years. So having some of those sector specialists would be, would be quite nice over time. Yeah, well, well, you said crypto, I didn't. So now that you've opened that door and that Pandora's <laughs> box, we have to talk about it because everybody wants to know about crypto. So um, does your firm have a view on, let's just say high level digital assets? You have a view on you know, blockchain and te- the technology behind you know, the growth in digital assets and cryptocurrencies. Um, and if you do uh, or you don't, why? I'm the I, default I, to our crypto expert, Jenny here. <laughs> yeah, so, so I've, I've worked in, in the space uh, a decent amount and uh, and obviously, but okay, so high, high level, and I, I'm speaking personally here and, and this obviously does uh, seep through to the, the, the company and in, in, my, in my views, but I, I'm, I'm a big believer in in different aspects of crypto, right? Like there's, it's so wide, it's, um, it, it, it can be overwhelming, but, you know, starting from Bitcoin, like you're seeing adoption and institutionalization of that in, in such a big way. And the biggest thing for me has been watching how the regulators treat that. Uh, and, and you're seeing acceptance, at least in the US, which is kind of the, you know, the gold standard for what, what happens elsewhere in the world. And, and I think that's going to have massively profound effects across just the fact that they want to regulate stable coins, which can, you know, those are 24-7 backed by US dollars. Uh, it, it's it's going to make things very easy uh, compared to what they are now. And then, and then just the... So you have that, and then you have kind of everything else, which is a massive bucket, right? And and this is a lot of early stage things, and they're they're experimentations, I would call them. And some things are are really really working and really working well, and and some things are you know, just, you know, just still at the at the baby steps. But you know, decentralized finance is incredibly. Um, promising there, there's lots of potential there nfts which is the newest craze you know it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind about what's going on there but when you look at the dollar volumes of the amount that are transacting nfts year over year you know just over the last couple of two three years and month over month it's hard to ignore and uh and so i think you're going to see blockchain seep into you know things from to like gaming and uh 
supply chains and uh, and finance and banking uh, slowly, slowly. And, and then again, Bitcoin is kind of its own Bitcoin and stable coins are its own little, little world. So, so I did a little rant there, but no, I mean, I just, I, I, I started this podcast with the idea of educating, you know, and providing awareness and then hopefully some inspiration to people out there that were thinking about launching a fund or going out and setting up a company. And I have uh, found myself over the last probably three months to six months personally coming to the realization that there's so much discussion about what's happening with DeFi and what's happening in asset management, what's happening in alternative investments, what's happening with marketplaces, what's happening with, you know, not to mention to your point, the crypto, this and the NFT, that. And I I keep coming back to education, you know, for me, uh, as somebody that's been in the business a long time, I'm no expert in, in much uh, uh, of the alternative space. And when you start talking about Bitcoin and, and, and crypto and blockchain, there are very few experts. Um, and number one, it's also changing so quickly. So I'm, I was just curious to hear, you you know, your all's point of view, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the things that you're most excited about that you see out there in terms of technology outside of Bitcoin and, and, and blockchain. That's clearly a big one. Um, but there's also lots of interesting and exciting things happening in, um, you know, in electric vehicles. There's lots of interesting things happening in payments uh, and and the and and in um, virtual payments. There's lots of interesting things happening um, in in space, right? With uh, with Blue Origin and and you guys, uh, you know, made a recent investment indirectly in SpaceX. So. When you look at all these different themes, and we have carbon and climate, um, do you? And you're generalists, so how do you do? You really look at it and say, "Hey, we had an idea come across the transom, and you know we're we're going to look at it, and and we may not have done anything in that space before, but it came from a well referred, you know, well regarded uh, person or team, so it's worth digging into." Or how, how do you approach it? Because I, I, I think it'd be really fun to work at, at, at Stack right now with all this <laughs> stuff that you can look at, but it also incredibly difficult to, to try to figure out where to spend your you know, 12, 14 hours a day. I would definitely say there's not enough hours in the day. From the yeah. number of different data rooms that we're in right now, I think we're in 18 or 19 different data rooms of companies that we're going through, parsing through. But that's what that's what keeps us ticking. That's what we love to do. It doesn't matter what the business is. We'll get a phone call. There's a company that we would like you to look at. We'll look at it. And whether it's 30 minutes of an hour of our time, you can cycle through these companies pretty quickly and see those stars. And then you're going to, you're going to dig even more. It's, it's the amount of reading that you do to get up to speed on different spaces, or even the contacts that, we can reach out to from our advisory board to our board of directors to other contacts in the hedge fund space or sector specialists that we've dealt with before we can get up to speed on names very very quickly and yeah to your point like there's not one space that we're just gonna sit there and say hey we're only gonna invest in fintech we're not gonna we're only gonna invest in SaaS. we want a portfolio of the disruptors in a number of different uh number of different industries from fintech to SaaS to space. I think another really, really interesting area that we've been spending some time is in the content creator economy. 
giving people tools where it can help them out their branding on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn. I think that space is absolutely incredible. And we've been, we've been uh, doing a lot of work in that area. Well, let me know because uh, I'm a content creator myself. And I will tell you as somebody that's creating a podcast and trying to put content out there, that's quality consistently that is efficiently done and in a way that's affordable for a content creator there's a formula and there's a platform that needs to be developed that allows you to do content, but create it in a way where you can create value for your sponsors, for your guests, where you get connectivity and where you create the ultimate, uh, which is community, right? Where people can engage. And I've, I've seen some really interesting companies there, but, uh, but I think you're right. Like it's, we're at the very beginning uh, because there are so many people that want to put content out. And uh, I don't think it's going to be, you know, just YouTube or just Instagram or just Facebook, you know, not all roads just lead there. I think there's a whole ecosystem way before that. And a lot of those tools too, a lot of those tools are just so complex to use that if you can just make them easier for people who aren't usually exposed to those tools, that's a really interesting area as well. Yeah. And you can, you can automatically start to create value relative to these big brands that have digital marketing teams and social media influencing happening, you know, internally. And so you can level the, and people want that organic content. They want it from people who are smaller, influential and connected, not necessarily anti-big brand, big company, but people are looking for something early, early stage. So that's a space to watch for sure. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, you know, the, the question I love to ask guests, um, because you're in an innovation space, you're in, you know, the early days of Stack Capital. Um, I want to ask you both to comment on the question of, you know, what are some of the, the challenges of being, you know, a public company? And then what, what are also on the other side of it, what are the things that you have found to be you know, relative to your quote unquote former lives, you know, in, in, in the hedge fund world, or in your case, Jimmy, in, in the crypto space, what are some of the things that have been uh, a positive about being a public company? Because I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who are uh, very intrigued and maybe you have copycats that are emulating your, your approach, right? I don't know, but um, you, you, you took a private kind of sh- business that operated largely kind of in the shadows, private equity, and you sort of said, hey, we're going to open this up to people. We're going to tell you what we're doing. We're going to announce our investments, you know, and we're going to give individuals an opportunity to participate. So I'd love to hear, hear you both comment on that. Hey, Jimmy, I'll start with you. Great. Yeah. So in terms of the, uh, the, the hard parts, you know, being a public, you know, when usually when you do a startup, you know, there's uh, you get to kind of ease into becoming a bigger company. Uh, But when you start as a public company, you have to hit that high bar right away. And so that's, you know, definitely a challenge, but the biggest thing is that we're bringing something innovative to the table here in, in, in our space. And so you always get, uh, you know, people poking and prodding and trying to figure out, you know, well, why are you doing something different? Why isn't everyone else doing this? You know, eventually they realize, oh yeah, this actually matches well with what we're investing in. And so, so, so we get faced with skepticism here and there, but 
uh, I think whenever you do anything innovative and anything different and bring that to the market, you know, that's always the way it's, it's going to be. But, uh, you know, I've worked in the public space my whole life. Like that's been my bread and butter. And, and it's nice to see, uh, I always love the public companies that bring something uh, different to the, the public market, something that they can't invest in any other way. Uh, and that's why I love this so much, right? Because this is, uh, once more people realize what we're doing here, they're going to realize, okay, like this is the only way in as a not accredited investor, and even for many accredited investors, to get exposure to this space. So, so to me, that's incredibly excite- exciting. Yeah, Jeff, I'm going to let you comment. I would say one of the one of the things that's definitely different than the hedge fund side being on is the amount of paperwork that comes with a public company. <laughs> in the board meetings and all the meetings. So that was definitely, that was definitely new to, uh, new to myself and another, a few of other guys. Um, but I have to say it's incredibly rewarding to sit there, have an idea, dream up that idea and, and, and execute that with a number of other individuals come towards a common goal, that team and bring something like this to the market. That was, I'm, I'm just, I'm just really proud of not only the team, um, our board and our advisors, just proud of everybody to bring something like this to the market. That's, that, that's different. That's, that's unique. That's helping people actually with their own personal return profile. So that's, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm selfish because you're, you're here on ATLLs and, and yet one of the things that I've always felt alternatives could do for folks is diversify the portfolio, but that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people like, Oh, diversify my portfolio. Okay, great. But, 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 but actually give people the returns, deliver the returns and, and allow them to get excited about actually investing. (laughs) Right. I mean, how many people open up their retirement account? Like, Oh, okay. Well, I own, you know, a super small fraction of a mutual fund and that mutual fund owns a small, small fraction of about 400 companies, you know, and, and you don't really feel like there's any connection. Whereas I feel like with what you guys are doing, individual investors or pension funds, you know, they can look at this portfolio and be like, wow, we're invested in 10, 12, 20 really disruptive companies. I mean, obviously everybody's optimistic. They're all going to work. They're all going to become the next Amazon, the next Tesla. Maybe the reality is they won't all become that successful, but but they can identify with these disruptive companies that they see disrupting things around them, right? Hopefully in a good way, uh, whether it's improving the, the, improving the climate um, uh, problem that we have, or it's improving, you know, uh, financial friction, you know, providing access to the, the financial system for the underbanked and underserved. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, uh, there's a lot of people that can be cynical when you say, well, there's a social utility in the investments. Um, and, you know, they're all for profit. But at the end of the day, when you strip it back, I think that like the promise of blockchain and the promise of some of the things happening in ESG and the promise of what's happening in the private markets, you know, um, that they actually do serve society, you know, in, in, in a way. And uh, you just have to be not cynical to find it and see it. <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just, uh, I want to thank both of you, you know, Jimmy and, uh, Jeff from stack capital for joining me today on ATL alts. 
I'm going to let you guys each make any final comments before we wrap up. If, if you have anything else that you think our listeners would love to know about, you know, where you're at, um, I'll definitely put notes and links to get more information in our show notes. But with that, I'd love to see if you guys have any final thoughts. I, I, I just want to come back for episode three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, episode yeah. three, we'll, we'll, we'll get it planned. I, uh, I, I've definitely, um, I've got a lot of more questions and I know that our listeners will, you know, be interested to follow, you know, and see not only the other companies that you find yourself in a position to invest in, there's already been some real, real exciting ones um, that, that people should check out, but also just to see how the business evolves, right? As I think you've really laid down a template, perhaps uh, opened up the door to some competition, but also laid down a template for, for alternative ways to, access the capital markets, but also provide individuals and, you know, people in pension funds and others with an opportunity to participate in the private economy, which is huge and growing and people want exposure to it. So kudos to you for, for making that a reality. Appreciate that. Thanks Andres. Really appreciate that. Sure. So with that, I'd like to thank you, Jeff Parks and Jim Evopoulos, the, uh, the team uh, behind Stack Capital for details uh, of this you know, interview for part two and also for links to uh, the company's website and information on, you know, what they're doing uh, at Stack Capital, definitely check out atlalts.com. Uh, you can also find us on LinkedIn and other social media outlets. Thank you, Jeff and Jimmy. Thank you very Thank much you. for the time.